And the fact is that for some cancers, you can be treated with, you know, a targeted therapy alone, but then there are other cancers in which the targeted therapy actually works better when given with chemotherapy. It can be different in different people. If it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. Well, maybe not so much when you're talking about breast cancer tumors and the drugs used to treat them. In fact, there's a lot going on in the field of biologic therapy to treat breast cancer that has us seeing double. I'm Suzanne Stone, and this is the More Than Pink podcast. Dr. Wendy Chen is a senior physician in the Breast Cancer Oncology Center at the Dana-Farber Institute and on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She's a breast cancer medical oncologist and cancer epidemiologist, working to translate findings in the lab into breast cancer clinical practice. As a practicing oncologist, I think it's really interesting that you're looking at what's happening in the lab and bringing it into clinical practice. What's that like as an oncologist? Um, so that's one of the exciting things about doing oncology is that there's so many different kinds of research uh, that can be done. There are some people who work uh, purely in the lab, um, and then there are other people who work purely doing clinical trials in which you're looking at different uh, drug therapies. And then um, there are other people, similar to myself, who what I do is that I take work that I've done in epidemiology, which is looking at lifestyle, hormonal, and other sorts of factors that may influence breast cancer risk, and then thinking about how these could be translated into people. Uh, so, for example, I have some studies uh, or have done some studies looking at melatonin. I have another study looking at aspirin. We've also done uh, studies looking at uh, body weight, uh, body composition and breast cancer. So that's the nice thing, like I said, about oncology research is that there's so many different types and flavors of oncology research out there. One of the things that is happening in the research area is this idea of biologics and targeted immunotherapy like Herceptin. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in the clinic setting with drugs like Herceptin. Yeah, so targeted therapy is a huge area of cancer, um, uh, in, in cancer care, as you uh, mentioned. And it really can meet any variety of things. So I think it is a term that is somewhat confusing to people because you see it all the time. And it just means that targeted therapy just means that it targets a particular area. We've actually had targeted therapy for cancer for a long time. So, for instance, in breast cancer, it's well known that there are many cancers that are what's called estrogen positive or hormone positive, which means they have higher levels of the estrogen uh, receptor. And it's always been well known that if you use drugs that target the estrogen uh, receptor, such as tamoxifen and what are called the aromatase inhibitors, um, estrogen-positive breast cancers respond very, very well uh, to that. The new interest in targeted therapies, which has occurred over the past few years, has really looked at a very, very wide number of uh, new uh, targets that weren't known about. But I think what's important for patients to remember is that targeted therapies that work well in one cancer, for instance, melanoma or lung cancer, those 
may be targets that are very specific to those cancers so that for someone with breast cancer, those same drugs that are very effective in melanoma and lung cancer may not be as equally effective in uh, breast cancer. But one example of the next wave of targeted therapies after the estrogen-related ones for breast cancer would be ones directed against the HER2 protein, what are called HER2-positive breast cancers. So HER2-positive breast cancers make up about 20-25% of all breast cancers. And what it means is, as I said, they overexpress, have higher levels of this HER2 protein, which is a protein that's important for blood vessel growth, cell division, and other uh, things. And there have been antibodies that have been specifically developed that block the HER2 receptor or HER2 protein, and these have been enormously effective for treatment of HER2-positive breast cancers. The nice thing about targeted therapies is they mainly have uh, affect those areas that have higher levels of that particular target and don't affect normal tissue as, as much, and so that's why targeted therapies specifically against the HER2 protein um, really do not have many of the side effects of standard chemotherapy. But some targeted therapies, such as the HER2 therapies, like Herceptin, need to be given along with chemotherapy for maximal effect, whereas there are other targeted therapies that can be given alone without chemotherapy. But again, it varies from cancer to cancer and also varies upon um, the the, the particulars of the person's uh, uh, cancer. Um, immunotherapy is something that's completely separate. Um, so that's not necessarily, when we call targeted therapy, it's immunotherapy, like I said, is, is, is a separate concept. So really, it's a very complex problem when a patient is presenting to you. It's not just about um, chemotherapy or a biological um, therapy. It's often a combination of the two and depends on what they're presenting with. Yeah, absolutely. I think in an ideal world, obviously everyone says, gee, I want to avoid chemotherapy. I want to avoid, you know, the toxicities and the side effects. And the fact is that for some cancers, you can be treated with, you know, a targeted therapy alone, but then there are other cancers in which the targeted therapy actually works better when given with chemotherapy. And again, it varies from cancer type, but it also varies from person to person because when cancer manifests itself in people, it can be different in different people. So one of the things that we've been reading a lot about and and seeing a lot about in the cancer community is Mm -hmm. is this idea of biosimilar drugs. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Is it the same? What is it similar to? Yeah, so it, it, biosimilar is, it's a, that's obviously a medical pharmacologic uh, word, and what it refers to is that there are certain um, medications um, that are biologically derived, derived from living organisms, and many of these antibodies um, that are used for targeted therapies are made in this way. So it's a little bit different than a chemical in which you can manufacture the exact same chemical, and that's what we talk about when we talk about generic drugs. Is you have a brand name drug, and then once the uh, pharmaceutical company loses the patent on that drug, then you can form generics. And you know that those drugs are basically exactly the active drug is exactly the same. The inactive 
uh, drugs, the fillers that they use to make the, the actual pill may be different, but the active ingredient for a generic drug is exactly the same as a brand name drug. When you have biosimilars, it's not, you're not sort of creating a chemical in the same way because they're made from living organisms. So because of that, what you can do is you can replicate the methods, but you can't replicate the exact chemical compound in the same way. And so that's why biosimilars have to undergo much more extensive testing to prove that they're both equally effective and also equally as safe or have the same side effects profile as the already approved drug. But the hope is is that you ha- if you have biosimilars that are competing, it'll give people more choices of potential medications and then hopefully with lower prices. It's not necessarily a better drug, but it's not worse um, either. It's just like when you have generic uh, medications available. They're not better or worse than the brand name. They're equally effective. So biosimilars are not necessarily better or worse than the drug they're trying to replicate, but they're they're supposed to be equally um, effective, so just gives people uh, more choices. And eventually the hope is if there's more competition, that costs would be lower. Sounds like a really complicated process, uh, maybe more complicated than, say, acetaminophen versus Tylenol. So when I walk into the, to the drugstore, that's, an easy, that's easy for me to understand. But it sounds like the idea of making something that's a biosimilar drug is far more complex, far more yeah. complex. It, def- it definitely, it definitely is. And so that's why they don't, even though we, we you sort of think of it as a generic drug, and not, it isn't exactly the same as a generic drug, because a generic drug, it, since it's the exact same chemical, it doesn't have to undergo all of this extra testing. A biosimilar, because it's not exactly the same, because again, you can't control living organisms to make everything exactly uh, the same, um, it goes undergoes actually much more extensive uh, testing than you would for making a generic drug. So something like so so let's say the FDA, what is what role do you know what role the FDA plays in this? The FDA has to formally approve any biosimilars as opposed to a generic drug. There a generic drug you're just making the exact same compound as the approved one. So they don't have to separately do clinical trials to show that, oh, the generic drug is equally effective. It's the same chemical, the exact same compound. So of course, it's equally effective. It's the exact same thing. For biosimilars, because it's not the exact same thing, um, they actually have to formally go through um, a very rigorous um, FDA approval uh, process that really um, is almost as rigorous as getting the original drug itself approved. Do we have any biosimilar drugs that are on the market today specifically for breast cancer? Yeah, so we do have ones that are the biosimilars for trastuzumab. The brand name for trastuzumab is um, Herceptin, so that's a medication that's used for HER2 uh, positive uh, breast cancers. And then we also have biosimilars that are FDA approved for supportive uh, use for people who are on chemotherapy. So, for example, there's a growth factor that used it can be used in certain situations in which someone's blood counts are low and they need to be higher, and there is a biosimilar that's also um, available uh, for that uh, growth factor um, as well that's FDA approved. So this is relatively new, though. Is this within the last three or four years? Yeah, biosimilars are, yes, are relatively uh, new. 
um, that is uh, correct. And that's because they usually are only considered generally at the time that uh, the patent is expiring. And the as you know, pharmaceutical companies can hold patents for a certain number of years, and it's around the time that they're expiring that the biosimilars would then become a potential uh, option. As long as uh, a, a company has a patent on it, then you, you can't have these types of medications. But now that uh, trastuzumab perceptin is coming off patent, uh, then that's why there are biosimilars now coming up. So how does this, or does it, change the standard of care when a patient walks in the office and you're prescribing medication? Does this, does this advancement of biosimilars change the way you practice in the clinic? No, it, it doesn't really change sort of the standard of care in the way that generics didn't really change the standard of care because, again, these are drugs that are equally effective. They're not more effective or less effective. They're equally effective. It's not that they have fewer side effects. They actually have the same. They're actually supposed to replicate the original drug. So it really doesn't change the standard of care in uh, that sense. It may change things uh for patients in the sense that the drug that they receive, it may not be called Herceptin. It may be called something uh, different. Um, and eventually down the line, the hope is is that, again, if the costs are lower, that that's something that eventually would be reflected. But you know, these things are very new right now, so it's hard to say. And then the other reason it's hard to say is that chemotherapy in general is not something that for most people with health insurance in the United States, they don't directly pay for chemotherapy because it's generally covered because obviously chemotherapy is a medically necessary item. Um, so because of that, most patients don't feel or see the cost of chemotherapy the way that they would see the cost, for instance, of prescriptions that they go to the pharmacy to fill, and you can see what the copayment is. For most chemotherapies, because they're given in office, there really isn't much of a copayment, if any, for most of them. So it sounds like that most patients in the future, or even as early as today, could perhaps be given a biosimilar and not realize it. It's possible. I mean, obviously, the physician, if they're uh, they if they're not giving someone Herceptin, they would need they should tell them that it's not Herceptin. Although it is true that medically, it's not as if someone's care would be impacted if I gave someone Herceptin versus a biosimilar. Um, it's not as if I would be providing poor care or they would get be getting inferior care. The, the care would be the same. Um, it, it is good to inform people about what they're uh, receiving. So I do think it's important uh, for people to tell them. Uh, but it would not, uh, like I said, it's not as if using one versus the other would either uh, in a positive way or a negative way affect the patient. Is there anything that a patient should talk to their physician about? It sounds like it's really the same drug. It's going to do yeah. the same thing. Is there anything I mean, specific, I though? I think it's I think it's helpful for people to know what they're getting. So I, I do think that that's helpful. Um, is that it is helpful to know not just that oh I'm on chemotherapy I'm on her two directed therapy. I think it is helpful to know the names of the drugs too. Absolutely, it's important to understand what's happening inside your body. Exactly, and what kind of care uh, what care you're receiving. You no, know, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, it's it, I think knowledge is very empowering. Absolutely. 
What do you see as the future in, in five years? Do you see that this is something that changes the way that a patient can get care because perhaps of the cost difference? That's what the hope is. Um, and the hope is uh, uh, also mainly uh, a lot, not mainly, but also in developing countries uh, because the United States, the health insurance here is fairly well funded, but in other countries in which um, they don't have as good health insurance and there's much larger out-of-pocket costs for the patients, um, the hope is is that especially for other countries and developing countries, if this could lower the price of HER2-directed uh, therapy, there would be a lot of people who potentially uh, would benefit. In the U.S., it's a little hard to know um, how whether the patient will feel the how much of the final uh, impact in terms of if there is a decrease in cost, um, a patient will actually be able to notice because, again, the way that our current health insurance works, if if someone has health insurance, they're not directly paying for things individually. Uh, but like I said, in the developing countries, the potential impact is, is huge. I would also think for our uninsured population here, which is somebody that for Komen, we're um, all about pay a lot of attention to them. And so for that uninsured patient, this might be a game changer for them as well. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, fortunately, that that is something that I think we should all try to work for because even if you bring the cost down, it's still very, very high. You know, the cost of cancer care is very, very high. So even if you bring it down, uh, unless you're really wealthy, it, it's, it would be hard to cover costs out of pocket. So obviously in an ideal world, um, there would be some type of health coverage that there wouldn't be as many uninsured people as there currently are in an ideal world. That is the ideal world. I'm all about it. (laughs) I'm all about it. I think I would just reassure people that um, it's not something that's uh, less um, effective um, and that it is something that hopefully in the long term, but like I said, in the short term, we just don't know how the market will play out, but hopefully in the long term, uh, it will bring down the cost of uh, cancer care, but I do want to reassure people that if they hear, gee, it's not Herceptin, I'm getting something different instead, I do want to reassure them that it's not something that would be harmful for their care in any way. Advancement in the lab usually means advancement in the clinic when it comes to breast cancer treatment. Today, the biologic drugs which have been changing people's lives for decades are being replicated, almost exactly, And the results are more options for oncologists to wage the breast cancer war with. A big thank you to Amgen Oncology and Merck for making this podcast possible. We record our podcast at the iHeartMedia studios on South Congress in Austin, Texas. Thanks, Mike, our studio engineer and technician, for putting all of the pieces together and making us sound so great. Thanks to the Komen team who makes everything happen behind the scenes but mostly to our donors who save lives every single day by investing in the work that we do. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be more than pink.